Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today we have Dr. Esau McCauley uh, on the show. And uh, some of you, this is going to be the first time you've heard him. And I think you're going to really like this guy. But before we get to him, let me tell you about Northeastern Seminary, which is actually where Dr. McCauley teaches. Perhaps you're exploring a new opportunity to serve, or I've been invested in ministry for years, or somewhere in between. This is where Northeastern Seminary meets you. Between reading scripture and knowing how to live a life of faith, between having an idea of where the church is headed and being able to plan and articulate a vision, between relying on what you already know and being open to learning from others throughout the world, if you find yourself in this sacred space between the certificate and degree programs at Northeastern Seminary are designed to equip you in the next phase of your ministry. Whether you've been called to be a faithful teacher, transformational leader, missional pastor, or biblical peacemaker, you can find a course of study that will prepare you to fulfill your calling in God's creative and redemptive work in the world. For more information, go to nes.edu slash calling. Go over there and check out their new competency-based master's curriculum at nes.edu slash calling. There you go. All right, then uh, don't forget my book comes out the 1st of October, October 2nd. You can pre-order it right now. We have special incentives for you, including a wall print, and there's a special podcast that will be released, which I'm talking about this book, and maybe even you hear about the uh, the novel I wrote, because I, I put this together in the podcast, the connection between both of them. I literally did not think of it until this special podcast, which if you pre-order right now, and then you go to my website, lukemoser.com, click on the link for book. There is information about how you can get these special incentives for those of you who pre-sale right now. All right, without further ado, here we go. We have joining us from New York, Esau McCauley. I can't say your last, you just say your last name for me since I said it wrong. McCauley, you got it. You were close enough. Okay, good. All right. Well, Thank you for joining us. You're in uh, what part of New York? Ra- what is it? I'm in Rochester. Rochester. And for those of us who don't know New York geography, where is that in relation? I know most people think of New York as being New York City and then a great wilderness, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but if you, if you leave New York and you just start heading west, you'll eventually hit Rochester before you get to Toronto. Okay. And if you keep going past Rochester, you get to Buffalo. Okay. And then you'll head into Toronto. So we're oh, okay. North. Are we northwest? I think we're northwest of Buffalo. We, Sorry, northwest, northwest of of New York, or directly west. So we're in central, upstate north, northwestern New York, but we're northeast of Buffalo. So Esau, okay. what you're saying is that your doctoral work didn't involve any geography. No, and I'm from Alabama, so I barely, <laughs> I, barely, I barely know about anything about what's in New York. I know how to get from my house to my job. Uh-huh. So you're you're Southern boy living yes. in a in a world of Yankees. Yes. How's that how long have you been up there? This is my third year. Okay, how's that? What's what what's the barbecue situation like in your life? I mean, I don't wanna I don't wanna throw shade at the glorious barbecue that they attempt to make here in upstate New York. And I'll just say that bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. Yeah, you're, t- you're <laughs> they're doing the best that they can. You're a southerner. They're, they're, the barbecue's okay. I would say that there's a, couple, there's a couple of places in Rochester that approximate what I can get in Alabama at most places. 
Huh. But you're pulled pork barbecue guy, being in Alabama. Yes, I'm. Ugh. I'm, I'm a bar. If, if you, if you, any, I'll take Alabama, Memphis. I'll take Kansas City. I'll take whatever kind of barbecue you want to give to me. If you pay for it, I will eat it. Okay, all right, that's good. That I mean, Texas is the the better. Don't pull pork. No thanks. Pass. Okay, but we'll. I'll forgive you for that. Let me tell you one thing that people have to know about you. You studied okay. under Tom Wright for your yes. your doctorate. Yes. What like the area of your doctorate was in what? Galatians. Galatians. I, st- I focused on Galatians and the Abrahamic promises in Galatians. Okay. Most people don't really care about what I actually study because once I hear once they hear the name N.T. Wright, there's like a 15 second swoon. Yeah. While I describe what I actually do, and then they come back again and, and say, "Well, what did what did you learn from N.T. Wright?" Basically, people think that I had a PhD in N.T. Wright, but I actually had my PhD in the New Testament focusing on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Okay, well, I, I want to stick with the script that you're used to, just so you're comfortable. So let's swoon about N.T. Wright for a second. The, the first time I met Dr. Wright, he was the, the bishop. He was in Tennessee, and I flew over there to interview him for the first time. I literally wore a button-up shirt, tucked it in, and put a coat on. The only time, I've done hundreds of podcasts. <laughs> like, look at how I'm dressed now. Like, this is what I wear for every podcast. But the first time I met him, I dressed up. So I, I'm sorry I didn't dress up for you. I'm just telling you, like, that's... Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the amount of respect that I got. You just showed me that I'm on a lower level, which is probably pretty accurate. No, the level is N.T. Wright, everyone else. Like, that is the only, yes. the only person. When, when did you first get introduced to Dr. Wright's work? Oh... Um, Tom Wright changed my life. Like most people have a Tom Wright testimony. I was coming, I was fresh, I was fresh in the seminary and my professor assigned, I think, Jesus and the victory of God. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people, I'd come from a secular university with a lot of questions about the Bible and what does it mean to believe in scriptures, given all that we know about higher critical research. And I remember just reading the first 100 to 150 pages of that book and the footnotes, the way he engaged with people on the other side. And I said to myself, I want to do that kind of scholarship one day. I never thought I'd actually study with them, but it was reading Jesus and the victory of God and the New Testament and the people of God. that had a strong impact on how I viewed what scholarship should look like. Wow. Okay, so your undergrad was where? My undergrad was at the University of the South, also known as Swanee. That, that's where the, I met, the, the, yeah, that's where I met Tom. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I went there. It's, it's a very pretentious name unless you know about it, because with the University of the South, I mean, who does that? But we, some people say, like, it'd be, it'd be equivalent of saying we're the University of the North. So the University of the South, also known as Swanee. That sounds like a Game of Thrones thing. Like, we are the, the yeah, North. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, we're the people. <laughs> we're, the North, we're the South. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. Well, uh, okay, so you go there. You go to seminary at? Gordon-Conwell. Okay, so you inter- you're introduced to Tom Wright's work for the first time. You go, this is the yes. kind of work I want to do. And at that point, what were you thinking you'd do vocationally? Well, at the time, I was a Baptist. And I'm sorry. By God, by, by, yeah, I know. It was, it, I, I'm not a disgruntled former Baptist, though. I love my Baptist brothers and sisters. I'm just a former Baptist. Uh-huh. And so then I decided that I wanted to become an Anglican clergy person. And my plan was to get ordained and pastor in a church. It wasn't until much later that I thought I wanted to go into academics. What made you pick uh, the Anglican Church? Oh, that's a good question. You're welcome. The liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer. Really? I was, so yeah, I would say that, you know, and, and, and this, it's hard to talk about 
anytime you make a change, it's a slight critique of, this, of the tradition that you came from. Yeah. So I want that to be heard as in all love. But I feel like growing up, I was told to read the Bible and don't sin. That was kind of like the spirituality that I was given. And I didn't and I didn't know this, but I didn't really have a spiritual life. I just had Bible reading and prayer. And it was the first time when I started going to liturgical churches and going through the liturgical calendar that I found a structure through which I could live out my faith. And I said, I used to always wonder as a pastor, what am I going how am I going to choose a sermon every week for 40 years? That seemed like an impossible idea. And so once I saw the liturgy and I saw that we're given text to preach and we're giving things to emphasize during different parts of the year, I didn't think that I had the skills of my own to give my congregation a spirituality, but I said, I can give them this. And so the prayer book for me symbolizes kind of the ancient tradition that I pass on to the congregation through my preaching and teaching. And so once I discovered that as something that I could form my own soul and could use to form my own family, I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could give this, um, the Bible, the sacraments, and the church year to my congregation? Hmm. Do you, do you have anything you miss from your, uh, your growing up days in the Baptist church? Black gospel music. Really? Yes. Ha- um... In church. Yeah. So how would you compare Anglican music to black? I'm, I need you to say these words, not me. Black gospel music? Yeah. Like how would you compare uh, them to? You can, it's okay. It's okay if you're white to say the word black. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm um, trying to get you to compare and contrast because you don't want to slight yeah. where you come from. But Yeah. So um, black gospel music is, it's the music, it's the music of my people. I'm, I'm a southerner who whose family whose ancestors were enslaved and so there's a certain spirituality of suffering and redemption and transformation and the power of the gospel that is not just in the lyrics it's in the visceral singing of the music and so there's there's a certain kind of there's a certain experience that you have when you have a group of people who have themselves been the experience have experienced oppression who have every reason to be cynical but who nonetheless say praise Jesus. And so that experience is not always there in uh, Anglican liturgical music. And actually, the truth, the truth of the matter is Anglican liturgical music, Anglican traditional hymnody has its own power. But I've just been in a lot of churches that also have kind of contemporary evangelical praise music, mm-hmm. which is fine in its own right, but it's just not the same. I long for the day where there's a multi, where, where, Anglicanism and gospel music become friends again. That's one of my long-term dreams. Really? Yeah. How do you think that could work? Well, I'm the director of the Anglican Multi-Ethnic Network, and our job is to help encourage the Anglican Church in North America, my denomination, to plant multi-ethnic churches so they can better reflect the diversity of the cities in which we're found. And so I would say that it's just as simple as doing anything else. I mean, if you plant an all-white church in the suburbs, then they're going to want to hear Chris Tomlin, or whoever is current yeah. now. And if you plant a black church in the city, they're going to want to hear Kurt Franklin, Natasha Cobb. And if you mix those two things together, then you'll get some kind of glorious combination of Tasha Cobb and Tomlin. Matt, yeah, Tomlin. And so I don't think that it's impossible. And the other thing is that liturgy is not doesn't contain in that sense a cultural a cultural limitation so liturgy isn't white it isn't black it's catholic it's the church's faith and so you find you find liturgical worship in africa you find it in asia you find it in latin america what makes a a service 
either approachable or unapproachable. It's the enculturation of that liturgy in a particular place. And the truth is that oftentimes Anglican liturgical worship has been enculturated in kind of white, either mainline or evangelical culture. So, I mean, the, the uh, 40, 50 million black Anglicans, and they're not all singing hymns, and they're not all singing Chris Tomlin. They're singing African praise music. And so the same thing can happen in America. The... Uh, and will happen. Ooh, I like that. I like that. It will happen. The the difference of the the Anglican and the Episcopal Church. Some can't really differentiate the two. How would you how would you make those distinct, or or how would you help people understand the differences? Well, I have friends who are in the Episcopal Church, and and I am obviously an Anglican. I would say that the Episcopal Church encompasses in the United States encompasses with it the entire spectrum of Christian belief. So there are people in the Episcopal Church who would be, by all, by any definition, pretty traditional. They'd kind of believe the creeds, believe the, the scriptures, believe all of the things that you would say come along with uh, traditional Christianity. And there's also people in the Episcopal Church who would be on the very, very, very far left of uh, the Christian tradition. And so they're all kind of in one body. Mm-hmm. And I would say the, on, the, on the whole, the Anglican Church in North America is more uniformly traditional. Now, even within that traditionalness, there's obviously still great diversity because within the Anglican branch in the United States, there are people who are more evangelical, there are people who are more charismatic, and so and there are people who are more Catholic in their spirituality. So it's not as if there's like the Episcopalians are very diverse and then the Anglicans all believe the same thing. It's kind of the limits of the diversity in the two different traditions. And so I'll say in the Anglican Church of North America, it's fair to say, uh, that they that the standards of belief or, or, the, or the boundaries are a little bit more tightly yeah. drawn. When you see Tom Wright's work being able to transcend just the Anglican Church, and it's it, it has a, a vast impact on modern evangelical thought and understanding of Scripture. As you see someone who's been able to like transcend just the traditional boundaries of the denomination, what do you think has caused that? Because obviously students like us who are in seminary and we start reading time, right? Oh, this makes a big impact on us. But it's not just seminarians. It's also the the light people, the normal people who are finding his work so compelling. Why do you think that is? Well, I would say that Tom Wright is a part of a long tradition of Anglicans who everybody reads. So I, I, I sometimes hate to... Um, remind my evangelical brothers and sisters that a lot of your favorite evangelicals are actually Anglican. So you can go back to someone like John Stott, J.I. Mm-hmm. Packer, C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the, the greatest hits that you roll out when you want to introduce people to Christianity. And I would say one of the things that makes Anglican spirituality often so universal is that, especially in England, it, we, it didn't, Anglicans and Anglican didn't England didn't have all of the same kind of cultural supports that we have within evangelicalism. What I mean by that is that their arguments had to stand on their own. There is no evangelical Christian subculture in England. It's secular culture and Christianity. And so the the case has always had to be made in the public square. So any argument that they put has to be something that can earn the respect of their peers at Harvard or Cambridge. I'm sorry, Cambridge or Oxford Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so when you hear it here in the United States, there's usually a um, a breadth of learning and culture and engagement that sometimes isn't required of more traditional scholars in the U.S. because we can we sometimes not always play in our own field and in British scholarship you you oftentimes play in a bigger playground which makes the writing more compelling and sometimes sounds more hmm, reasonable. That's good. Uh, as someone who is an Anglican, do you? Uh 
do you have a visceral response, like a negative response to the phrase taxation without representation? Do you, do you find yourself, <laughs> do you find yourself really down? Like on the 4th of July going, man, we lost. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I might not be the only person rethinking the glories of the monarchy at this point. But I'll do that. <laughs> Outstanding. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess I guess what I would say, I guess I would say, is that it was really interesting when I was living in Scotland and then in the UK. They'd have prayers for the Queen in the liturgy, and I, I said them. I was here, and I'm not saying that I'm not a faithful American, but if the Queen needs me, I might have to answer. The wow. Question. So maybe you're like a undercover agent who knows we don't know but what we do yeah. know is uh, you, you wrote a, a blog i want to talk a little bit about uh, the the blog was about life uh, as a biblical scholar of color which um yes okay so you wrote this uh, a couple months ago and one of the mm-hmm. things that like you touched on uh is that as a biblical scholar of color you will be treated as a commodity and a danger yes so there is a there is a pressure that as a, a white evangelical person, I know some people who are in similar situations to me feel where it's like, well, you know, it has to be diversity or it's not a good thing. And so you end up like, let me just grab someone of color because we want it to be diverse. And while the impulse is probably good, like you're saying, it turns a person into a commodity that just has to meet a quota. Well, I think I'll put it a little bit differently. So there's all kinds of people. If you, you have to like close your eyes and think of all of the people you know with mm-hmm. jobs. And think of all of the people who are bad at their job. There's tons of people who are bad mm-hmm. at their job and who got jobs for a variety of reasons. And so, but when, they, when, when the person of color gets hired, there's always the assumption that either A, they're a diversity hire. And the only way to prove that you're not a diversity hire is to be magnificent. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's hard to be average as a black person, because if you're average as a black person, they go, oh, here's a diversity hire. Even though there's 15 average to mediocre white guys who are floating around in the same institution. And so there is this idea that it's hard for you as an African-American or as a Latino or as an Asian or as a woman to actually just exist and be judged on your own merits. And so that's one of the things that I talked about when you are seen as a, a danger, because people are always going to assume that you got the job because you are a minority. So, I mean, I can go to St. Andrews, I can study under N.T. Wright, I can publish a couple of monographs, but the first thing they say is, oh, of course you're going to get the job because yeah. you're black. Yeah. Yeah, that's not... Even though there's people, there's people at St. Andrews working you know, all over the country. I'm not saying I've been mistreated or anything like that. I'm just saying that's the reality of the politics. And, and, and you're right that there's reasons for it because of historic imbalances that are now trying to be yeah. righted. I, I do have friends who have uh, terminal degrees from uh, very prestigious universities who, as a white straight male, have experienced that it's difficult for them to get hired. And I've heard some of them say, you know what? It is the reality, but in light of the last, I don't know, a couple hundred years, there are imbalances that we need to try to work around. And it, in the academy, it's it's difficult, and they're trying to do their best to, to fix a broken system, and it's just a mess. So that's what I, that's what I mean when I say that's it, that that's a some somewhat oversimplification, and this is what I mean. What's the closest school to you? Did, the closest Christian school to where uh, you are. Three hours away, Abilene Christian University. How many black faculty do they have in their Bible department? Uh, when I was there, I don't think there was one uh, non-white 
person in the graduate school? So when, when, a, when a, a straight white male says that he can't get a job because he lost out to a person of color, that might be the case. But statistically, that's a very small percentage because there aren't that many of us with yeah. jobs. I mean, you could probably go throughout the entire state of Texas and maybe say there's 10 people of color yeah. who are hired and there's maybe 100, 150 positions. Now, it may be that in their round, they might have been one, but there's probably other times they lost out to someone who wasn't a person yeah. of color. I say that just because there aren't as many black, I mean, how many black PhDs in the New Testament yeah. do you know? There's yeah. not a lot of us, so it's impossible yeah. for us to take every job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, if that was the case, then there'd be a lot more black people doing New Testament than there are. And the simple matter, the, for example, when I was in Scotland or the UK, I think I was the only black PhD um, person in the five major British schools. And, you know, that's the place where a lot of evangelical hiring mm-hmm. comes from. So I get it. And I do understand that there are a lot of schools who are looking for diversity. But I would say that the, the supply of black scholars is much lower than white evangelical males tend to um, acknowledge. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, one of the things that... Uh you talk about uh, in the blog. You also said something. It's okay to put your hand to the to the plow and toil the soil the soil of Pauline exegesis. It's okay to consider the synoptic problem, or even God forbid, the Catholic epistles or the Book of Revelation, um, and, and focus on you know traditional questions. Uh, you can do this. One of the struggles is, I, I don't know if, you, if you've ever felt this, but as a person of color. If the conversation is always, well, as a person of color, let's talk about race. Instead of saying, as a person of color whose expertise is, you're a a Pauline scholar, you know Galatians, talk to us about the text instead. Do you find that, like, that's the only conversation people are wanting to have? Or more more often than maybe it's merited? I would say that one of the difficulties is that when you're a person of color and you're hired at an institution, there's the assumption that you will be both a champion of your ethnicity and your culture along with a scholar and you'll mentor and encourage and help students of color. Now, that's not a problem for me because that's a part of what I feel passionate about. But I do think that when I tell people my, my PhD is in Galatians or my, my dissertation focus on Galatians and the Abrahamic promises, they often go, yes, but can you come to my church and talk about race? And so I would say that oftentimes it's hard to be seen as a scholar who has somewhat traditional interests. Now, I'm also somewhat unique in the fact that I care both about Galatians and about black people. And so I tend to, in my scholarship, go between both worlds. What I wanted to say to the people in the article was, you don't have to be the champion of your ethnicity if that's not the call that God has placed Mm -hmm. on your life. And if you feel like God has called you to talk about the synoptic problem, well, God bless you, you are free in Christ to do that. And sometimes scholars of color don't feel that responsibility. You said... I mean, they don't feel that freedom. Yeah, so that you freedom. said traditionalist? When you're saying that word, how do you define that word? Uh, to me, a traditionalist is someone who believes oh, okay. and tries to pattern their life according okay. to the scriptures. What, what makes you choose that word? Someone used the word orthodox or... Oh, I think I've just, I was hanging around with evangelicals the other day. I would usually use the word Nicene Orthodoxy. So I was just, I was just in a different space. So maybe that's the word. You're just dumbing it down for us. Okay, yes. thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I try to translate between which audience. I don't think I have an Anglican audience. So I'm trying not to use too much of my Anglican nomenclature. But yeah, I would say someone who's Orthodox or someone who's creedal yeah. is actually um, more home. Yeah, so you could write a book between me and the evangelical world. Like you could have, there it is. There we go. And there we go. Like I know, Tana yeah, Coates. 
I don't think I'm on that I'm level. I'm just saying, yet, like, but that's it. I, were you trying to? Were you trying to reference Coates? Was what? That, was that what you were trying to do? I, actually, I just can't never say his first uh, name, so I just say Coates, and then I. Uh, Tana. Yeah, Tana. I can't. Your last name is McCulley, and you say I, I can't do that one right. Yeah. So Tanahasi, there's no way I'm going to get that one right. I'm going to stay in my lane and do what I can. Okay, let me talk to you about a situation that. <laughs> this is just about race. So I just completely, I'm not going to talk about Galatians. There we go. Nice, I'm not nice even going to pretend like this. Okay, here's a struggle that uh, I had this conversation with Christine Cleveland, Christina Cleveland, who, uh, Christina again, Cleveland. I don't get names right, whatever. She wrote a book called Disunity in Christ. She's going she's gonna to be at the conference in Rochester. I, That's the reason why her name I was making the, I, I was you, making the transition that you know she's at your conference oh, that you've sorry. got coming up. Um, yeah. I had this conversation with her a couple years ago, and... It's it's a it's a it's a real question because the tradition I'm from is the Church of Christ. In case you don't know who that is, like this okay. is the church that's definitely going to heaven. The one without instruments, without that, the instruments. I mean, that's one thing about us. But yeah, yeah, that's. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have other stuff. To do. That's what everyone says. We don't do. Yeah, no instruments. Yes, many of our churches and have other- an acapella service and an instrumental service at this point. But we take. Sacraments, very seriously, communion every week. Baptism is placed in high regard. Um, but yeah, we don't do it. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Let's move forward. <laughs> I apologize. Please forgive me. No. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that God's work is being done by the people of the churches of Christ. With instruments and without like, them. Because there's, there, there's like, I was the Church of God in Christ, Church of Christ. And, the and, no music and people. That's us. United yeah. Church of Christ. And so I was trying to think. That was the shorthand. But I know what it's like because... Sometimes when I say I'm an Anglican, they go, oh, you're the one who got founded from a divorce. And I go, no, <laughs> it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. We're more than that. And you, so hey, I get it. I get it. You're so more than I a apologize. divorce. I'm more than acapella singing. There we go. Now, this is this is ecumenical, the ecumenical movement. Band exactly. Right We're doing this, doing this right. OK, so one of the struggles in my tradition is that you have a lot of leaders who are realizing that we need uh, to reconcile and atone for the transgressions of slavery and racism. And this conversation that we want to be intentional about, and we want to work towards this. And then the conversation comes to kind of a halt because the church has also realized that our treatment of women as in some ways, second class citizens um, has mm-hmm. also is also one that needs to be rectified. And so we want to deal with both of these forms of, of justice that we care about. But when we have conversations as someone who cares about gender and cares about race, the, in, the concern about gender inclusion often disqualifies us from being involved in conversations with our black churches in our denomination. Because overwhelming majority of them are on a different, have a different read of gender issues than us. So, so, so do the black churches do or don't do ordain not. women? Forgive me for not knowing. Okay. And most of the white churches do yeah, ordain the more, women? Yes. Not most, but okay. this subset of the, the white churches who are, we don't use the language of ordination, but that sort of treatment, yes. involvement, pers- uh, worship services and the academy, all that, um, they're typically just, it's like the Venn diagram just never overlaps. Yes. And so it's almost like you're forced to, to deal with one or the other. Like, do you want to deal with the gender issue at the expense of excluding the black churches? See what I'm saying? Oh, yes. I, I would say that if, if I were a black woman, which I'm not, 
that I would say that you couldn't separate. I mean, that's what intersectionality yeah. is trying to teach us, that you really can't separate uh, gender from ethnicity from, as, as, as they experience the world. And so what I would say is that I don't think that all of the, I mean, I mean I'm an egalitarian or however you want to describe it. I believe the women yeah. should be participating in ministry. And, but I also recognize that not every single Christian is going to agree with me and that Christians of goodwill can disagree. And simply because you disagree on that point, I don't think it makes you inherently misogynistic. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't, I just don't want to, so I think that there's complementarian Christians who can love the Lord and mm-hmm. treat women well. And so I would say there's work to be done uh, at the basic level of how women are treated and platformed in the church and that you can, you can pursue those goals along with the goals of issues of ordination. Now, other people might think about that differently. I do think there's certain forms of complementarianism that go beyond what I would think is even a charitable reading of the text. I think there's some extreme forms of it that I just go, I can't get there. But I'm just not going to, like, I have friends who are complementarian. I have female friends who are complementarian. So I can't, I mean, what am I going to do? And so I would say that there's enough common ground there that as Christians we can work towards treating treating women in the church better, and deal with issues of justice and reconciliation. And I don't know very many, and I can't speak for black churches in the churches of Christ, even black churches anywhere. I don't know very many black churches that are going to say, if you ordain women or you support the ordination of women, I won't partner with you for racial reconciliation. Half the black churches in the South part of the NAACP and they don't believe anything as far as like a requirement of belief. And so I I think if black churches are, are, are used to dealing with secular organizations then they can definitely partner with churches who have some theological differences, as long as yeah. they help with some charity. Yeah, and like you just said, none of us can speak for all anyone. Like I can't speak for all white. Like yes. it's not like all white people are monolithic. And I, I mean, it, even with yes. the uh, the Colin Kaepernick stuff that uh, Nike brought again to the forefront uh, with the recent campaign, to to say that like all soldiers have one attitude about that. Like that's not fair. Like why do you yeah. think we tend to do like this monolithic view of? Well, white evangelicals are like this, and this is what you know Anglicans, and this is what black, and this is what white. Why do you think we jump to that? I think it's intellectually easy to be able to categorize people and then put them to the side, so you don't have to deal with how their arguments and their worldview mm-hmm. might challenge you. So, I mean, I mean, I know this isn't the Colin Kaepernick podcast, but since you mentioned his name, I'm still honestly, honestly trying to figure out in my brain, in the history of humanity when kneeling in front of something was a symbol of of utmost disrespect. I just can't imagine it. I mean, everything I've ever knelt before in the entirety of our life has always been as a symbol of respect. Even if I was upset, if I was upset with you and I wanted to fight you instead of punching you in the neck, I knelt in front of you. I just can't see how that would be infuriating. But, you know, I think that simplifying it, saying this is about disrespecting the troops, then that makes it easy to dismiss the issue. Or if you say anyone who agrees with the, the, the means by the protest is racist. That's another way of dis- dismissing it. Now, I think that the, the, the argument is pretty straightforward as to what Colin was trying to accomplish and that we should be able to figure that out and at least agree to disagree. But I just don't think that we're really good at our society as saying, I disagree with you, but I don't think that you're the devil. But we tend to go, I disagree with you and you're a meatball and you hate little children. Yep. That's how we tend to deal with disagreement. And, and I now. think this is where church should be the strongest, that we should be communities of disagreements that you can have liberals and conservatives who take the sacraments together who celebrate when someone enters the water of a baptism and sees them that this is a new sister this is a new brother and we have 
we have a commitment that trumps any political affiliation. And so I would love for us to be a model to the rest of the world of we can disagree on these issues, but we can still take the sacraments together. We can receive them together. The amazing thing about Christian theology is it is not utilitarian. We do not believe that the means justify the ends. We believe that the means themselves have ethical content, which means that the way that we disagree matters and that there is no form of disagreement that cancels out the need for Mm -hmm. the Christian virtues. One of the difficulties is is when you talk about something like Christian virtues, you get accused of tone policing Mm. or silencing protest. But I mean, protest being in the street. But my whole thing is that I always owe my Christian neighbor and even my non-Christian neighbor love. And so even my testimony or my protest has to have something about their aroma of Christ about it. How is my protest different from the protest of the person down the road who doesn't believe yep. the same things that I believe? And so I do think that what we need is a Christian theology of both disagreement and protest that doesn't silence the oppressed, but but allows us to maintain the moral ground that 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 inspires or enables transformation yeah, of the oppressor. You've got a uh, pre-session like conference, pre-conference thing about uh, clergy activism and pastoral ministry uh, coming up. And I think that's fascinating because, especially in the black church, there's a long tradition of clergy speaking up against injustice and speaking for justice. And so there is that prophetic witness of the church that, that needs to be there. But often our prophetic witnesses typically become, well, this is a right or this is a left prophetic witness. And you can't have the sort of like the pastoral uh, presence in the other side. And so churches either become, well, this is a Republican or this is a Democrat church. And our understanding of justice has become like emasculated to where it's just left and right part, partisan politics. How do we move past that? Well, I would say this is one of the things where I just think that evangelicalism just needs to learn from the black church. Every, sometimes there's just people who do stuff better. <laughs> like as an Anglican, I can say, I can say as an Anglican, we are somewhat the worst at evangelism sometimes. We need to sit down with the Baptist and say, hey, Baptist, hey, non-denominational person, mm-hmm. how do you do that? <laughs> how, do you, how do you invite people to church? Because we are all introverts. <laughs> and so I think there's some kind of theological humility that is necessary. And historically, the black churches in the South in particular, I, can't, I mean, I'm assuming it'd be all over the country. They weren't able to compartmentalize justice or public witness and faith because they didn't have an otherwise, you know, well endowed or or financially stable congregation that just needed Jesus. The black black people in the South during Jim Crow and Reconstruct well, post Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement always had to both look towards the spiritual and the financial or physical needs of the people. And so there's always been in the black church a combination between social activism, or what we would call social activism, just contending for our people to live and preaching of the gospel. And so I I think that what we really need to do is in the same way that you go back to the first century and look at different strengths in those places, we should look at how the black churches historically combined those things as a model. Okay, so let's say you're being brought in to consult with a church that is great at evangelism, and let's call them like non-denominational church. And so the pastor has got some cool skinny jeans and a great haircut. And they're great at inviting. Does he have? Does he have a beard? Does he have a beard? Maybe just a five five o'clock shadow, something like that. Maybe, maybe. But okay. um, and he brings you in and says, "Okay, we uh, we've understood the church's witness to be telling people that you need Jesus in your life, and Jesus is going to forgive you of your sins, and you don't need to worry about eternity anymore because of Jesus. And you're trying to give a more full, robust 
message than just that. Where do you start? With the Bible. I would tell them to like read the Gospels and I would tell them to read Paul's letters. Um, Paul opens his most famous letter in Romans by declaring that the gospel is about Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is also the, the son of David, who is now king over the entire universe. And he's called Paul's called to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. So Paul makes of his gospel as a proclamation of the universal kingship of Jesus to the nations of the world that we then access by faith. And the question then becomes, and I, and I want to ramble, I'll, I'll be really quick. The question then becomes, well, what does that kingdom look like? And what are the resources we have to understand what the kingdom of God looks like? Okay, then now you're in the gospel stories where you see Jesus showing compassion. You see Jesus healing. You see Jesus with the outcast. And beyond that, you also in places like the Psalter and in places like Psalm 72, where God describes the ideal kingdom of David in which the poor and the needy are cared for and the king rules in righteousness. And so the proclamation of justice or the, or the continuing for justice is a manifestation of the gospel in so much as it's directly connected to the kingship of Jesus. When it's not directly connected to the kingship of Jesus, then it's, then it's mere activism. But when we're saying our witness for justice in the public square is because we believe that this is God's will for the world, which will be fulfilled when Jesus comes, then you're doing gospel ministry and what we call social justice all at the same time. I don't think they can Some... be separated. Some hear the word social justice, and they go, well, that's just liberal politics. Christianity is not about that. It's not about social justice. What do you think about that? I would say read Isaiah, who says, woe to you who add house to house until there's no room left Mm -hmm. for the people in the land. That's what what Isaiah said. You know, Isaiah talked about... Isaiah talked about, in particular, economic injustice in which the rich bought up property that raised the prices so that the poor could no longer afford or had space to live in the land. So it's impossible to me to read the prophets, to read the Psalms, to read the Proverbs without some understanding that God wills for his people to have a social ethic. Now, we're not ancient Israel, right? And so you can't take the laws of ancient Israel and apply them to the United States. But the, but the, the testimony of Israel forms the social ethic of the church. And if Jesus rules over the world and the church is a foretaste, the church should be in the public square, in a, in a democracy, contending to make the eschatological future for the people of God, make it possible in the present as much as possible. And so I, I would just say that it's not about me trying to prove some political agenda. It's me reading my Bible and saying, I don't know how to be a Christian and not be compassionate because I've read yeah. the Old and New Testament. Okay, so you got a conference called Call and Response, the past, present, and future of black Christians yes. in America that you, along with some of your friends, are putting together. And um, yes, the name comes from the black preaching tradition, yeah. which the pastor and congregation joined together in the effective yes. proclamation of the gospel. I'm just reading this off your website in case you're wondering. I didn't memorize that. Oh, you're nailing it. I was hope I was thought you might slide. Well, here's here's where I'm going with this. Like, just, uh, so I'm <laughs> preaching at a friend of mine's church in uh, a predominantly black yes. church, and first time yes. preaching in a black church. If I go to this conference, will it teach me how to preach in my friend's black church? Dang it! No. The interesting thing about it is that not all black pastors use call and response preaching. And here's the amazing thing: I'm one of the organizers of the call and response conference, and I don't even oh, use no. call and response preaching. Are they going to kick you out when they figure that out? <laughs> but they, they might kick it out. So I would say that um, if you come to the conference, the point the point of the conference is for 
black Christians and the people who care about them that think seriously about the future mm-hmm. of black Christians in America. And so it's not just a conference just for black people only. I said, I've always said, if you have a black person in your congregation or in your neighborhood and you care about ministering to them effectively, then this is the conference for you. And I've also said that I've often, I've, I've been at conferences where I'm the only black speaker. And so it was, it'd be 15 white speakers and they said, oh, we have no black people. Let's call Esau. And nonetheless, black people will come to those conferences and still learn. They have to translate those things for their community, but they'll still learn. And so even though this conference will have, I think we have maybe 18 black speakers. We do have mm-hmm. one white speaker now and uh, one Asian speaker. But nonetheless, any community, because we all believe in the same gospel, can come there and learn and actually hear. Now, it's not a conference designed to explain blackness to white people, but it is give you a chance to kind of sit at the black barbershop or the beauty shop and hear about the conversations that are going on in our communities about what our communities need to thrive. So are you saying I could just go to the barbershop instead of making the trip all the way up there? I mean, I think it's a little bit more dangerous for you to slide into a black barbershop than for you to come to the call and response conference. But if you're feeling froggy, you know, you can jump. I'm just saying, I don't know. (laughs) I just, I I mean. I mean, I I think they can tighten up your fade. I think they can tighten up your fade a little bit. I mean, it's looking (laughs) nice, but they might be able to help you out a little bit. (laughs) My friend whose church I'm going to said the exact same thing. (laughs) They they could could work in that fade for you. They could work on it. They could help you. Okay. Now, again, like, as a person of color and we're on the podcast. Like, I don't want you to think I'm just talking about race stuff instead of talking about Galatians. Well, Cause I, I know that's I'm argue. I'm, I'm organizing a conference about black people. So this, that gives okay. you, that gives you all the right to ask as many race questions as you want. Don't, don't worry about it. Okay. I'm not well, offended at all. Well, let me ask you a couple questions. It's Galatians. Um, how does it feel like that you specialize in a book that you yourself just referred to, to Romans as the most famous Pauline epistle? Like what do you, do you feel bad? Like, Hey, we're going to focus on like the Buffalo Bills who got second place in the Super Bowl a bunch. Well, I used to feel insecure about it, and because and Paul is also in his feelings a little bit in Galatians, so it's also Paul's probably grumpiest letter. And in so, his feelings, <laughs> yes, Galatians, black, do you love me? <laughs> that's a black phrase meaning we feel we, 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 we're emotional. I have no idea how much your audience will get that, but that's what it means. We have a lot of Drake fans. Well, a lot I mean, of Drake fans. Yeah, that was there twenty years before Drake. When Drake <laughs> says it, it makes its way into white community. But black people been in that feeling since the eighties. But that's okay. <laughs> so what I what I would say is, I used to defend Galatians because it often is seen as kind of the prequel to Romans. But then mm-hmm. last year, I had to actually teach Romans. And you know how, I mean, I'm a Patriots fan. And so I know what it's like. There are Buffalo fans here. And I feel like deep in the Buffalo Bills fans' hearts in upstate New York, they know that the, Bill, that the Patriots are better. And so I've been lying to myself that Galatians was better than Romans until I taught it. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> Romans is better. better. No, they're both inspired. They're both the word of God. But like Romans is, he's, it's part of the height of his powers. And but, so I'm, I'm more than happy to say that I, I, I cut my teeth in, in Galatians, but, but Paul was, Paul was, he was, he okay. was in his bag in Romans. All right. Well, but I mean, you got a lot more circumcision stuff in Galatians. So you got that going yes. for you. No, so I, I think that Galatians has its own moments of brilliance. I think that Galatians three is, mm-hmm. is a tightly argued, sophisticated, apologetic for justification by faith apart from works of the law. I think that the statements about sonship in Galatians 4 are powerful. I think that the discussions of the fruits of the Spirit and the kingdom of God in chapter 5 
is has its merits. I think that the Israel of God in chapter 16, I mean, I mean, chapter six, I mean, so a new creation. I mean, Paul has this stuff going in Galatians. So I don't okay. I don't want to disrespect it, but I don't want to pretend like they're the same. I appreciate you being, you know, that well adjusted that you can acknowledge that. Final question on Galatians. Yes. In Christ is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Is that a picture of one day in heaven? Is this where it's going or is this where it is right now? So I always tell my students that in Christian ethics, your eschatology informs your present practice, right? So Paul says, you know, you, you, you've died with Christ. You've been, you've been raised to new life. So therefore, you know what your future is. Your future is new creation with Jesus. So given that, how can you let sin reign in your life now? Because you know this mm-hmm. is where you're going. So you begin to live out this new life that we're going to have at the resurrection now. So if we know that the church is eschatologically diverse, then Christian ethics would demand that we try to invite that diversity now. Now, in Galatians 3.28, Paul is making a statement about the, what the present reality is. And when he, he's not denying ethnicity or gender as real categories, like Jewish people don't exist anymore or male or men and women don't exist anymore, as if Paul was kind of the first colorblind theologian. He was saying that as it relates to becoming an heir to the kingdom of God, your ethnicity plays no role. So being a Jew doesn't make you any more an heir of the promises of God than being a Gentile. Being a man gives you no more right to the inheritance than being a woman, which is radical in the first century, especially considering Old Testament texts. Because in the Old Testament, women often inherited alongside their husbands, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, women didn't get property unless there were no male descendants around. And so what Paul is saying is, as a woman, as a woman, you are an heir. You have legal right in the kingdom of God to all of God's promises. And so that's a statement of fact. This is who Christians are. But also, we need to embody that as much as we can in our worship and our that's, life together. That's good. You know what? I think That's old, in my dissertation. I think old Tom did well. I think he, uh, he raised you up well. People back in Alabama would be proud. And I think people in New York are like, I'm, I'm glad he's here. I think that's, that's worthwhile. Well done. My mom had never heard of Tom Wright until she Googled him after I got in my PhD program. She was, she said, oh, lucky you did something, baby. Oh. <laughs> she didn't know who he was, <laughs> who he was at first. And then that's... she started sharing social media. And then she, and then she, she, she lives in a black part of um, Huntsville. And when she, when she went across town, and started hanging out with her more evangelical colleagues. And then she started dropping the name Tom Wright, and she started getting some street cred. And so now she's like, oh, yeah, my son was studying with Tom Wright. And so that's, my, my mom has a lot more pride than she had when I first got in. She used to just wonder, why are you going all the way to Scotland when you get to do your PhD here? But now she knows. Now she knows. If it makes you feel better, I give my dad uh, Tom Wright books pretty often for, like, Father's Day, birthday, Christmas. He likes them, too. So... There we go. Yeah, your your mom. I, I, I can sign a form, not sign it Tom Wright's name on it. I can sign. I, I had lunch with Tom Wright a few weeks ago. I don't know <laughs> if that would make it more valuable. I think it should. I think that that makes it pretty valuable. It's like I'm not as smart as Tom Wright, but I studied. I stayed at a Holiday Inn. Is that the thing? That's it. That's exactly it. That's exact. Well, thank you so much for the time. Great work in the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, let me just say one more thing. Go Cowboys. Oh. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.